it's just, it's like, I don't know how else to describe it. It's like literally just like meatballs, a little bit of red sauce, some ricotta cheese and like parsley. Uh, and that's all it is. And you just, there's like th four of them. But Tiger heard, he had like one meatball. So I ate the rest of his meatballs. And that was like the closest I've come to basically kissing Kim Kardashian. Welcome to the Mr. Bill Podcast. I'm Bill's manager, Anand Harsh. I'm also editor-in-chief of TheUns.com. I don't need to bore you with my typical bullshit today because Bill's guest is far more entertaining than I could ever dream of being. Tom Brennan, a.k.a. Kyoto, makes his debut on the podcast this week. In addition to being endlessly hilarious and charming, he's basically a walking meme, Tom is also an educator like Bill. He's also one of the most exciting producers in American Glitch, Halftime, and other granular subgenres within the broader experimental bass scene. He's got collabs with D's and Brightside under his belt, remixed Simba, performed a rowdy back-to-back -back set with Frequent that Bill and I personally got to witness. And this fella, Tipper, has played his music in sets. So, I mean, what more do you need than that? Time once again for me to shill for the Patreon. Let me start by saying that I'm incredibly hungry and the patrons keep us in kimchi and gochujang paste. Subscribers to the Mr. Bill Patreon get episodes a full week before listeners of the free feed and early access is available to listeners at all subscription levels, all of them, even the rock bottom ones. Patrons can also get bonus episodes, merch bundles, Discord rolls, and so much more. Just head over to patreon.com slash Tunes to support the show. Finally, if you want to sound like Bill or Tom, uh, even get near their level, head over to MrBillsTunes.com to sign up as a hardcore Abletoneer. You get full access to Bill's project files and tutorials, and we'll be revealing some fun things about the website very, very, very soon, I promise. All right, here's Bill's chat with Kyoto. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you are listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you're 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 listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. all right cool well yeah then i think we're good to go how you doing man i'm doing all right i'm doing all right how are you <clears throat> yeah i'm good yeah sorry i couldn't start right at one i was uh having a call with uh the keyboard player from dream theater ah really what uh what's the occasion uh so there's this artist called varian who uh showed him one of my tunes and then introduced us through email and he was like oh i would love to chat with you sometime and then we chatted oh neat all right and that was that was today <coughs> yeah um yeah it's pretty interesting man he's got some interesting ways of looking at music i was talking to him about uh odd time signatures and uh how and i've talked about this on the podcast a ton uh how i think four four uh, the reason why it feels so comfortable to us is a product of like having two legs and you know we walk one two one two oh, that's so neat. Feel, yeah and I was talking to him about that and he was like 
Yeah, but I think everyone's kind of like hypnotized by that. And if you just like spend enough time with odd time signatures, like seven or 13 or whatever, you like don't even notice that you're listening to them eventually. And they just feel like second nature as well. But just like not a lot of people are willing to put in the work to to get to that point of enjoying them. Yeah, it's like, who's that uh, that asshole who like lived and died like 100 years ago who he like recorded like like clanging around pots and pans on a vinyl and uh, like redefined like music and shit. I guess probably just because he was like too, like uh, he was probably so good with words that nobody could tell him he was wrong. Um, oh, and, yeah, uh, that sounds like a real asshole. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess it's, I don't know. I don't know a goddamn thing about it. I just know that, like, you know, some, like, my Berkeley friends, even though I didn't go, but friends of mine who went to Berkeley, uh, uh, I heard this from one of them. Uh, Really, I I think what I'm getting at here, though, is that um, uh, if you kind of, like, loop something for long enough, even if it's, uh, I mean, so long as the, so long as it resolves early enough, um, it's, always going to be like eventually going to be perceived as like a rhythm of some kind. And I almost feel like you can almost apply that to a different time signature. Like so long as you just like, if you just listen to it enough times and you start to get familiar with it, like, you know, if, if all you've ever heard is four, four, your whole life or whatever, uh, you know, five, four might sound weird at first, but it's really not that. And it's like, especially out of all of them, it's really not that strange. Yeah. It's just like four, four with an extra beat on the end of it. Yeah, or it just makes it the Mission Impossible theme song. Yeah, when you think about it, 3-4 is not that complicated to listen to. It's just like 1-2-3, one, 1-2-3, two, 1-2-3, one, 1-2-3, two, one, two, one, two, one. It's like a waltz thing, like dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. Mm-hmm. And then 1-2 is obviously just 4-4, four, four, basically. So it's like 1-2-3-4, which is pretty common and normal for us to listen to. And I guess 5 is just a waltz and then a 4-4 thing real quickly together and then that again and again and again and again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But it's weird because there's so many different ways you could even interpret it too because like what you just said, I mean like, uh, I mean unless I'm wrong, I mean I have no idea, like when you just said that 5-4 could be interpreted as like a waltz within an extra like two um, or 4-4 four, four with an extra 1. I mean, at the end of the day, does it really matter or does it really just depend on, like, what grooves you decide to emphasize? Well, that's a, the that's a thing, right, is if you're... Um, in electronic music, it probably doesn't matter because the software sort of does all the counting for you. But, like, if you're playing an instrument, definitely matters because that's mm-hmm. going to interpret how you play it and also how you remember it um, and also just how comfortable it feels to do. So if you yeah, remember like, it yeah. as like a three and a two, you'd be like, like that could feel very normal to you. But then four and one might feel super fucking weird going like one, two, three, four, one, one, two, three, four, one. Like it yeah. feels kind of staggered and fucked up. Uh-huh. Or if you go like one, two, one, two, one, one, two, like that could also be <laughs> one, 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 one. <laughs> That's funny. I, I um, went to a periphery show once and, uh, I was hanging out with Misha and a few other dudes from Periphery in the in the green room afterwards, and we were talking about odd time signatures, and he was just like, yeah, well, that shit's just in one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess no one can tell him he's wrong. Yeah, that's how he counts it. Maybe he's, he just thinks in menus and shit. <laughs> um, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah, I was going to say something about familiarity. Uh, you were saying the looping thing. If you just loop it enough times, it just starts to sound like a familiar thing. 
Mm -hmm. um, I feel like that's kind of like the whole basis of pop music, right? Like that's literally, I think, how Max Martin's brain works. He's just like, what is the thing that most people have listened to on loop for their whole life? And how can I just do that instantly so they don't have to listen to anything on loop to understand it on the first listen? Mm -hmm. Who's and this then, guy, Max Martin? Is he, uh, I just Googled him. Oh yeah, Max ah. Martin, is, he's like the the pop guy. Like he, he writes fucking everything. You've Googled uh, him, what, what's he written? Baby One More Time, or Hit Me Baby One More Time, I Want It That Way, It's Gonna Be Me, or It's Gonna Be May. Yeah, so like all of Britney Spears, yeah. basically. Probably way more. What I don't he? think... Oh, Swedish. Well, what is it? Why is it always like some Swedish dude, I feel like? Or multiple? Well, the, the other big guy in pop music's name is Dr. Phil, and he started out as a guitar player for Saturday Night Live, like a session dude. And then he somehow got into writing pop music as well. And um, he's American. But yeah, I understand what you mean. It is always some Swedish guy. Yeah, I mean, unless unless it's all this guy, and I just <laughs> like don't realize like how how vast his reach is. I mean, he's written a lot of stuff. He, like, I think he's kind of like the Hans Zimmer of the pop world. It's sort of like you know Hans Zimmer yeah. scored every fucking movie. His this guy's like written every pop song. Yeah. Maybe huh. Dr. Phil is just him as well, but he was like, hmm, how can I like seem more familiar to Americans? He's like, I got it. I'll name myself Phil <laughs> and I'll be a doctor. <laughs> Dr. Phil. Because, um, yeah, what a... Okay, well, <laughs> how do you spell this? Because I'm looking this guy up. All I can see is uh, Dr. Phil McGraw, American television personality. Oh, sorry, my bad. It's Dr. Luke. <laughs> fucking, not Dr. Phil. <laughs> yeah, I was Dr. like... Phil. It's like wow, interesting like name choice, Doctor yeah, yeah. Luke. All right, cool. Because yeah, all I could see was the Doctor Phil. I wasn't sure it'd be weird if there was two. All right. Yeah. So this Doctor Luke guy. Let's see what he's done. He's done. Um. Oh man, where's his uh, where's his fucking thing? Um, he did Kelly Clarkson single since you've been gone, but he did that with Max Martin actually. And yeah, he was. Uh, his career began in the late night television sketch show Saturday Night Live as the guitarist. Um, he did remixes for Bon Jovi, uh, and then he wrote a. He produced, um, I guess, Who Knew for Pink, Girlfriend by Avril Lavigne, I Kissed a Girl by Katy Perry, mm. and that was before he left Saturday Night Live, I think. And then he did um, some shit for Kelly Clarkson, and then. He did some stuff for B.O.B., Britney Spears, Nicki Minaj, Rihanna, T.I., Flo Rida, Miley Cyrus, Jesse J., Juicy J., <laughs> uh, Shakira, and Pitbull. And he also is noted for signing recording artists such as Kesha and Doja Cat. Wait, who's the most famous person you ever met? I mean, yeah, maybe, I don't know, Ben Affleck or something. Really? Like, Did you get to like talk to him or he was oh, just wait, like, you, in your talking, presence? Oh, you're talking about me. Yeah, you. Oh, who's the most famous person I've ever met? Oh, that's a good question. Oh, well, yeah. Well, well, yeah. I, I was just making some shit up about Dr. Luke. Um, <laughs> I would say probably Dead Mouse, maybe. Is, uh -huh. Perhaps. I don't all know right. if I've. All right, so what about like people that, like, you know, all right, uh, what about people that uh, you didn't even necessarily like talk to, but maybe you like were in the same like room as them? Hmm. That's a good question. I mean, I've probably been in the same room as some super famous people and not realized it. Mm. Uh, oh, I've been in the same room as T.I., for sure. Um, nice. 
Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I used to work at this fancy Italian restaurant in uh, Manhattan called Il Molino's. At one point in time, it was like the number one Italian restaurant in the United States for like a while. Um, really old school place. Basically just like run um, entirely by this team of Ecuadorians and uh, one Mexican a Bulgarian dude and uh, the owner or slash manager is like the only only actual Italian guy there. Um, the only the main reason I bring up the fact that it was uh, uh, mostly Ecuadorian dudes is because they were just like v- vicious, just like the most vicious people I've met in my life. Mostly in regards to the fact that like there was a Mexican dude there and like they treated him like a piece of shit. It specifically or like solely based off the fact that he was Mexican and it was just so bizarre to be a part of um, and really that place made me want to like shoot myself more than any job I'd ever had it was like the military except like you know uh, the gayness was a little bit more repressed um, but anyway um, one time, like famous people would come there all the time like Bill Clinton would go there Obama would go there celebrities would go there and one time uh, the kardashians like filmed an episode of their show there and i wish i could find the fucking picture um it's like somewhere on my facebook i uh, i thought you you like just asked me who the most famous person i met was and then totally just segued into telling me about racist ecuadorians i know that's what i thought for a second i was like <laughs> okay wait let me find my like where i'm going with this although i could talk about that for a, a while um because yeah, like the just the racism, like the in, the racism amongst different uh, Latin American uh, cultures and countries is like really strong. I guess it's probably not that different from like if if you had if I was like working at some like hipstery bar in like New York City, and then some guy from like Alabama comes in, uh, you know, everyone would be like, hey, look at this honky tonk guy. How would you even uh, you know, tell, though, unless he's, like, wearing a shirt saying, like, I love Alabama or something like that? Uh, maybe if he had, like, the 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 rebel flag or some shit. Yeah, exactly. Like the Confederate, <laughs> people, he's just wearing the Confederate flag as underpants. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, it's not even an actual piece of clothing. It's just, like, like loosely wrapped <laughs> around him. But um, Kardashians came in one time, and uh, I was only a busboy at this place, um, but... Yeah, I like poured her water and shit, and like Chloe Kardashian was there. I don't know which fucking one it was. It was one of her sisters, whichever one is dating the rapper Tyga. Um, but after she, after they all left, and like they hardly ate a goddamn thing. It was like they literally just like probably wanted to pick a fancy restaurant to have as like a backdrop for like to film a couple scenes. And um, after she left, or then all of them left. Um, she had some like wine and I like took her like it was like hardly even finished. I like, took a couple sips, but I could see exactly where her lipstick was on the glass. And I like took the glass and like rotated it. And I like shouted to all of my cohorts. And I was like, look, guys. And I like pressed my lips exactly where hers was. And I just chugged the wine. <laughs> and then Tyga also had like meatballs. It was like an appetizer. It's like fucking delicious. Um it's, just, it's like I don't know how else to describe it. It's like literally just like meatballs, a little bit of red sauce, some ricotta cheese, and like parsley, uh, and that's all it is. And you just there's like four of them. But Tiger he had like one meatball, so I ate the rest of his meatballs, and that was like the closest I've come to basically kissing 
Kim Kardashian. Yeah, what was your style of thinking? Just like if I press my lips to this and get herpes or some shit, at least it was like from Kim Kardashian and it'll make a good story for the rest of my life every time I have to have sex with a sexual partner and tell them about my Kim Kardashian herpes. <laughs> Honestly, that would be incredible. And I, you know, found out that I have HSV1, which is of the mouth, even though I never had like a cold sore or whatever. Mm. Um, so I guess, you know, shit like that. Well, because like when I was young, like in my early 20s, and I would, you know, sleep around and get tested. Um, I like, I don't know. This is, I think, why sex education is so fucking important. Because like, I would just go get tested for like HIV, and then they'd be like, "You're good." They give me like a thumbs up, and I would just assume I was good for everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't until years later that I realized, like, oh shit, they're not testing me for all these other things. I felt like an idiot. Um, and then luckily, when I did get tested, it, it just turned out to only be that of the mouth but it could be from kim because it was after that that's a good point yeah you you should just say that you got hsv1 from kim kardashian's leftover wine glass i feel like that's that's just good it's just good optics from from tiger's balls (laughs) but he would have to i wonder if there's any way you could actually transmit it from meatballs you'd have to like probably like spit all over them or like literally just like come on them (laughs) yeah i feel like if you like left your flaccid dick just like wrapped around like over the top of one ball for like <laughs> an hour and then you just rub the that ball all over your dick or something i don't know Is yeah there any- dude i i got tested for hsv uh, sorry for well for everything um <clears throat> about a year ago and it came back positive and i was like fuck i have herpes this sucks and, like i'd never had a cold so i'd never like had symptoms at all but mm-hmm. I was just like super bent out of shape about it because I was just like, fuck, this is now a conversation I have to have with every sexual partner going forward. It's like, hey, I have herpes. Um, if you don't want to, you know, this is a thing I, I, I feel obligated to have to tell you now. Um, yeah. <clears throat> and it was like really fucking me up. And then I went and got another test like about, I don't know, three months later or something like six months later maybe. And that one came back negative. And then I got like basically what was considered the gold standard of HSV tests, which was like, I can't remember the company, but basically they were like, we we do like really thorough testing. They take like two or three vials of blood and like do a shitload of tests to like test your different like IG, I think it's IgM levels or something like that. And that one came back negative too. So I'm I, I convinced I don't have it giving, given two out of three tests came back negative and I've never had symptoms. But yeah, there's a thing such as uh, false positives and I just got yeah. one and I was just like, Weird. yeah, what are the odds? lived for like six months of my life thinking I had ah. herpes. Wow. Yeah. yeah. It's horrible. Yeah. It'd be funny if like when you got that false positive, the doctor was like, also, you're going to die soon. <laughs> and then when you got tested again. <laughs> It was like, ha, just kidding, bro. They're like, like I just... never mind. We, yeah, how bad? But <laughs> just yeah, the, chain. yeah, the one positive from that experience, though, is that like I've actually lived through the feeling of thinking truly with no like doubt in my mind that I that I have herpes. So I know what it feels like now to get <laughs> diagnosed with an STD, even though I don't have an STD. That's actually pretty interesting. Yeah, I mean, that, yeah, that's. Uh, I would probably hate that. But I guess that's kind of like a ends justifying the means sort of a thing almost. Like, if you is that an experience you would recommend? It, honestly, the, the good thing that came from it, I think, is now 
I'm like way, way, way safer about sex. Like I won't have sex with somebody essentially until I've seen their, um, their STD results. And obviously we'll always use uh, protection and stuff like that. So I'm just like way more particular about it now because I'm like, now that I know what it feels like to, to actually get a diagnosis, I'm like, I absolutely want to go through my life without having herpes because yeah, it's just, it's a really difficult conversation to have with people. It makes you extremely undesirable in terms of how much people are willing to have sex with you, you know? Well, it just sucks, like, viruses, I guess. Like, like I don't know if I'm right about this, but, like, you can't cure a virus. Is that correct? You just kind of develop, like, sort of immunities yeah, to you, it. I think, <clears throat> yeah. I, yeah, you can't get rid of it once you have it, I think. But, yeah, but, like, um, if it's, like, a bacteria, then that's, like no big deal for the most part unless you know in like 10 or 20 years or in some post apocalyptic future you know they become resistant to antibiotics and then we all just go like belly up but yeah the the other thing is that like a shitload of people have it i think it's somewhere in the range of like 40 percent of people have herpes or something like that it's like a extremely high number so and it really is not like as far as I understand, because I did a shitload of research about it when I thought I had it. And I came to the conclusion of this isn't actually that bad to have, but there's a huge stigma around it. So the worst part of having it is the fact that 60% of people now think of you as a completely undesirable sexual partner. Well, and same goes for HIV. Like I read some interview with like uh, some doctor who... <clears throat> basically like went on record saying he would take HIV over like diabetes any day. Um, it, like literally they had some like landmark study they did like two years ago or so where they basically took 2000 gay couples. So I think that's 4,000 gay individuals. Um, it basically where one of the partners in each couple was HIV positive but undetectable, um, taking their uh, post-prophylactic or whatever the hell heck it's called, that uh, just the the medication that they take daily to keep the 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 uh, levels down or whatever it is, uh, and they basically monitored them for oh, like is a it year. Prep or whatever. Pre prep is what you take daily to prevent getting it. Uh, whatever the the thing I'm refer, but I think that the I don't even think that the negative. Uh, individuals in each couple were taking PrEP. I think that the study was specifically following the medication um, that people who are positive take to keep it in check. And in none of the cases over the course of like a year or so, basically the idea was that they would like have unprotected sex um, for a long time and like constantly check in like you know, every couple weeks or months uh, with doctors and in none of the cases did the uh, negative person contract it. Uh, only there were a few cases where people did, but then they ended up sort of admitting it was the result of infidelity. Um, <clears throat> so, in other words, uh, there was a zero percent chance out of two thousand couples over the course of a year or two um, having unprotected sex constantly of contracting HIV. In other words, they effectively said that it's literally impossible to spread it so long as you're taking your medication, which is pretty insane. And 
so I think like, yeah, the biggest thing about HIV that makes it such, you know, a spooky thing, mostly or largely is just the stigma around it, because it's really like it's as complicated as taking a pill a day, which I understand could obviously be annoying. But uh, and then, yeah, the stigma, really just the stigma seems to really suck. But so long as you live in a modern society with access to education and resources and health care, um, even in the United States, luckily, it seems like there's like probably always going to be resources in most places unless you're like literally living in like the, you know, backwoods, you know, like some like Alabama. Yeah. You ever see that movie? Oh, what the hell is it called? Gummo? Gummo. Uh, yeah. Oh, 1997 drama indie film. It takes place in this tornado ravaged town in Ohio. Um, and it's populated by the quote deformed, uh, disturbed and perverted. It's a real place. And literally it's like been deemed like third world country standards of living. Um, and they just kind of like, they, they do film, it's a movie with actors, but like they film it on like real locations and in real people's houses. And in one of the houses, like the crew was so revolted by it. Cause it's just, like hoarders and like, there's just like shit everywhere. Um, the hoarders uh, or the, the, the crew members like refused to like participate in filming the movie without, um, hazmat suits. But the director, like out of respect, refused to because uh, he didn't want to like insult these people who's letting them like letting them film in their homes. Anyway, I would imagine since places like that exist in this country, um, HIV is probably far more of a like actual dangerous thing because I doubt that they have any of those things in places like that: education, resources, um, access to healthcare, uh, etc. But yeah, assuming that you get tested um, and all these things, like it's really not a big deal. Um, and and funny enough, I imagine the only like with that logic, if you're taking your medication and you uh, that means that you can't spread it, then the only people who are going to spread HIV are going to be the ones who don't know that they have it. Right, which is honestly. Um Probably a few people, because like I was saying, uh, having thought I contracted herpes has made me like an incredibly paranoid sexual partner now. Like everyone I have sex with now, I'm like, I, w- I would like to see your STD results for, before <laughs> we have sex, which I, even that makes you undesirable too, because people are fucking idiots. But like, um, <clears throat> it's really surprising to me how many people don't know the current status of their sexual health? It's almost no one, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like well, very it's, few people. It's like Schrodinger's disease. Schrodinger's <clears throat> disease? You know, like, uh, like, you know Schrodinger's cat? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. So it's, uh, I, I think uh, it's like ignorance, ignorance is bliss. It's like uh, mm. a lot of people, I think, would rather not know. Um, yeah, that's true. I did a 23andMe thing recently, or actually it was a while ago at this point, and you can pay like an extra 50 bucks to know if you have like a bunch of crazy preconditions to diseases and shit like that. Like it can tell you if you have like a genetic precondition to Alzheimer's or like certain types of cancer or like you know, eye diseases or just like, I don't know, whatever. And 
like when I signed up for it, I definitely thought as I was doing, I was like, fuck, do I really want to know if I'm like predisposed to all this like crazy shit? And then I thought about it a little more and I was like, of course I do. Like if, if, if I'm predisposed to that, it's, it's probably, you know, if, if I'm predisposed to something like Alzheimer's and it's as simple as not drinking shit out of tins or something for the rest of my life to like <laughs> not get it, then like, of course I would like to know that information. Um, <clears throat> luckily, I, I was not predisposed to anything really. I had pretty good genetics in that way. But um, yeah, it is... Going to the that's like kind of the scariest thing about going to the doctor, right? Is the the fact that they might tell you something's like seriously wrong and you might need a surgery or something like that. But it's like a pretty irrational fear because how often do you go to the doctor and that's like how often have you gone to the doctor and they're like, All right, we have to cut your spine out today. It's like, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty like <clears throat> I had a like swollen lymph nodes in my neck on and off for like the last few months. And, um, I went to, like, I just recently got on Medicaid in Colorado, uh, which apparently it's like just completely free. No idea though. Cause, um, like I have a psychiatrist appointment, like on the phone coming up in a few days. Uh, I'll find out then. Cause I wouldn't be surprised if they pull the rug out from underneath me and like at the end of the conversation, they're like, all right, so how do you want to pay or something? I have no idea what to expect, but <laughs> yeah, there's probably like a copay of like you know, at least 15 bucks or something. Yeah, but before I was on Medicaid, <clears throat> I uh, didn't have insurance and was just like kind of crossing my fingers all the time. But this uh, lymph node, it's like the one right be like, like below your jaw, like kind of close to your ear, but just below your jaw. Um, and at first I thought it was a toothache. Um, so I went to the dentist and he's like, no, nah, you're good. And I was like, well, oh, fuck, that's not what I wanted to hear. I, I wanted it to be my tooth. And then I went to the urgent care and they were swamped because of COVID. It was and like, I literally sat in a tent outside because like they weren't taking anybody like inside. Whoa. Like you um, bought a tent? No, no. They had a tent there, like just in the parking lot, like a big ass tent. Um, and I just sat in there by myself, just like waiting. I was like literally the only person there for like a medical reason that wasn't COVID related. Although I also did get tested for COVID, but um you know, they, it just seemed like they were in like a rush because like doctor just like felt my neck and she was like, eh, yeah, I don't know. Here, uh, here's some antibiotics. And I was like, okay, took antibiotics. Didn't really seem to go away. Uh, and it's like came and went uh, here and there. But uh, um, what am I getting at? Yeah. Googling shit about oh, yeah. stuff like <laughs> that. It's like, just not, not helpful. Like, mm -hmm. not, it's like, it puts me in the worst headspace. It's like, there's like literally nothing, no, no none of the uh, uh, potential causes are things that I'm like, oh, that wouldn't be so bad. All of them, it's like, I would hate it so much. Um, unless I just got some fluke thing, but yeah, I don't, I have no idea anything about it, but <clears throat> yeah, it's easy to be a hypochondriac, I suppose. Yeah. Um, how's Colorado doing with the COVID stuff? I don't know. I mean, I did play a show at the Black Box with Restraint um, and Killsmith and uh, Grime Time. Like um, A few weeks ago. But it was like, because they're essentially allowed to open, I think, through some like legal loophole where they operate as a restaurant. Where, so they basically like, um, it was supposed to be outside, although it ended up raining, but they had a food truck. And... Um, you can purchase tables in like as a party. So essentially, if you don't have friends, you can't go. 
so like you could have a table of two, table of three, four, five. I think they had tables as large as eight, but they only it was like forty five people tops, um, and it was it operated the same way a restaurant would, where like you can take off your mask if you're at a table. Um, but the moment you get up to like use the bathroom or something, you have to wear your mask and you're like not allowed to mingle with other tables. Um, I mean, you know, it, it's a, it was a small enough quarters with not enough, not that many people where like if you wanted to like shout out to somebody across the room, it'd be really easy for them to like hear you and acknowledge you like you don't really need to go and mingle. And honestly, it was kind of cool because then you have an excuse to just sort of fuck off and like. You don't need to go, like, you don't have to talk to anyone. Um, I kind of liked it. But, yeah, um, I think that the black box, it's, like, Nicole and them are, like, doing everything that they can to make it, like, as safe as possible. And apparently they've only really had, like, problems with, like, three people on one occasion, like, refused to wear their masks, so they had to, like, get kicked out. Um, Dude, people who and, refuse to wear their masks right now are <laughs> fucking stupid, man. I know. They're from Florida, too, which is hysterical. Yeah, it makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, Florida yeah, sucks. I had Dirt Monkey on the podcast, and he was sort of like the one who sort of guinea-pigged the whole touring again thing and copped a lot of flack for it on online and stuff. But we had a, a good conversation about that, and I heard all of his points of view and stuff. But he said he went and played a, the first show, I think, that happened. Um, it was in, like, July or something. was in Florida at a nightclub called Guilt. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, he, he played there. And, uh, yeah, he, he said when he landed in Orlando, I think it was, or wherever it was, um, he he was he said it was like a pandemic wasn't even happening. There was like no one wearing masks and everyone was just going about life as normal. Yeah, I don't know who that fucking governor is over there, but um, I know he um, doesn't give a shit about this uh, specific thing. Um, my mom lives there. She lives in Sarasota. At first, she was absolutely terrified of uh, COVID. I think now she has a, a more... Uh, like digestible and realistic fear um because like i wouldn't describe how i feel about covid to be a fear i guess i'm just like i err on the side of caution um you know and i would rather be wrong and wear my mask and say that i tried than be you know the guy who doesn't want to wear it because then i just feel like even if it was a hoax or something you know what i mean um i think that that wouldn't change the fact that people who aren't wearing masks, I still think are assholes. Well, it's a, it's such a small price, right? It's like, just wear, like, how hard is it to wear a mask and how uncomfortable is it to wear a mask? It's not that uncomfortable and it's not that hard. So it's, it's like, yeah, even if it is a hoax or even if it is bullshit, it's such a small price to pay for the fact that it could be real. Or, I mean, it, it's definitely real. Like, it's not a fucking hoax, but yeah. They're I, I just know. I testing... They're just testing to see how docile we are, man. For, so I, they can I, change I, all the batteries in the birds. <laughs> I just tweeted like the other day. It was like, first, it was the stay-at-home orders. Then, the masks. Now, the vaccines. What's next? Is the government going to try and steal all of my piss? <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, honestly, my uh, sense of humor is like literally no better than a child's.
It's kind of like airing on the side of Wint. Do you know that guy, Wint or Drill or whatever he is? Dude, let me go read some tweets from Drill. This is, I've never read Drill's Twitter on, on this podcast before, but I think it's time because I, I really think you'll appreciate it. All right, here we go. Um, this was his tweet today. Bill Gates has so many followers that if he accidentally posts a picture of his spread asshole, it's not even worth his time to delete it. <laughs> uh, wow. All right, here we go couple of mob guys disposing of a body by tossing it into the aquarium's penguins enclosure saying these boids are eating good tonight <laughs> uh, uh, right now there's guys covering their dicks in bird seed to trick birds into sucking them and you're all here talking about the post office <laughs> <laughs> well that's good yeah. Oh, oh, this oh. one's so good. He says, VP announcement the same day as they announced Cosby Tetris 2007 no longer receiving eShop support. Nice cover-up. <laughs> <laughs> wow, is that a thing? What was it, Cosby Tetris? Co Cosby Tetris. <laughs> wow, I wonder what that looks like. I'm Googling it right now. Came out in 2007? Yeah, yeah, it's no longer receiving eShop support. Nice cover-up. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I wonder what... If Bill Gates has ever actually like spread his asshole for anyone, I'd uh, be surprised. I mean, yeah, I'd say so. I mean, he's been with uh, the same woman, I think, for Melinda or whatever for a long ass time. So it's, uh, I think, uh, probably conceivable that they've had sex, you know, a few thousand times, and one of those times he's spread his asshole. <laughs> yeah, well, I think when you have that much power, you probably experiment like. I think you probably, you not only have more freedom to experiment, but you have more resources to like make the experiment worth it. Dude, check out this this tweet is so good. It says bashing my skull against the steering wheel while screaming in my car for an hour, then coming on here pretending to be a mental health guru. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. Yeah, I fucking right, literally looking at Twitter. If I could murder any anyone. Besides Yoko Ono, um, it would be influencers. Mm. Yeah, it's like yeah. it's like it just seemed very entitled. It, just like people who I guess just like essentially document everything about their life, and then like you'll see a video of them at Coachella, and they're like, "Yeah, I'm just here because like I, I fucked some dude and and he bought me this Coachella ticket, and I'm just here." And it's like, yeah, I, I just don't know. I think that there's, it's almost like this snake oil salesman type shit. Like, I think if you're going to market your shit as like wellness or healthy or whatever, um, I think it deserves um, scrutiny and a lot of criticism. Um, and like, I've seen plenty of artists do this too. And it really rubs me the wrong way. Obviously, I'm not going to say anyone in particular, but like, you know, people who like will drop like a tune or an album and they'll be like, help me share these healing frequencies you know, and save the earth. Uh, and yeah, I like, had this chat the other day with uh, <clears throat> Urasime about like 432 hertz stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's the dumbest shit ever, man. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, Adam Neely. Oh, uh, he has a, yeah, he has a great yeah. breakdown. Yeah, his video is probably the best one. He's got honestly. like two videos on it, I think. Oh, nice. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. He really breaks um, it down. <clears throat> yeah. You said, uh, you're going to a psychiatrist now? Yeah, I mean, um, I <clears throat> had scheduled a therapy appointment, and then I overslept for it. It was supposed to be yesterday. I'm actually pretty bummed about that because I just feel like um, it's like I feel like therapy is like 
pizza and like a psychiatrist is like toppings. Like you don't really need the toppings as much as you need the pizza. Um, it's a weird analogy, but like, I, I don't know. Like, um, well, I mean, my experience with it has been the therapist is just the psychiatrist, but they can't prescribe drugs. Whereas the psychiatrist, they, they do therapy with you, but then at the end of the session, they can be like, all right, more problems, more pills. Yeah, but with, yeah, but with, uh, I mean, I used to see a psychiatrist when I was living in Florida, um, and I used to take Adderall, um, and, you know, oddly enough, it was, uh, like, the most productive I ever was in terms of at least music, uh, but also, I don't know, because, see, my thing is, like, I don't think I suffer from depression. I I do get circumstantially depressed, but I think that's just a matter of my uh, environment and, and things that I at least have the capacity to change. Um, but I do suffer from a lot of anxiety, um, and I don't really know where it comes from. Like, but my part of my like my theory on it, uh, at least as it pertains to myself, is that. I get anxiety when I am not being productive, and I, um, and I relieve anxiety when I am productive. Um, basically, when you're not distracting yourself from a, just the default state of being. Yeah, I I have always had like issues with procrastinating, and um, it, it really it really hurts me the most um, when I'm like, you know, not like reaching like goals that I have set for myself with things that I love, like music and stuff. Um, and like, so stuff like that definitely, um, gets to me uh, a good amount, but yeah, I, I mean, I'm not really looking for anything in particular when I go to the psychiatrist and it is a telepsychiatrist because like you can't see any doctor in person, I guess, unless you go to the emergency room or something. Um, but uh, yeah, like, and uh, yeah, I was in regards to the lymph node thing. I was so fucking annoyed that like it just seemed like I was an inconvenience, um, and like also my shit is a little complicated because I've moved around a lot. Like, like by the time I was like eighteen or nineteen, I think I had moved like twenty five times between both my parents. But then after that, I'm like, I guess the the plus side of that though is like I don't really give a shit if I'm gonna move somewhere like completely new or different. Um, I like, I love living in Colorado, and I moved here for the music and everything, but, like, um, honestly, after, like, another year or so, I'll probably uh, just go somewhere else and just check out another city um, just because I like doing that. But my thesis here is that um, because I moved around so much, I've never lived in, like, the same place for longer than, like, two years. Um, I don't have, like, a general physician or uh, a general like psychiatrist or whatever. I don't have like any medical um, uh, expert or whatever who knows me and my history. Um, so like every single time I gotta just be like, all right, here's my shit. Um, take my word for it. <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, I'm kind of the same. I've never really had a, a full-time GP for the same reason I moved around a lot. Um, I mean, specifically moving from Australia to here, but I, um, ha I haven't really noticed too much of a problem with doing therapy on over the phone. I mean, just in the same way that I haven't noticed too much of an issue with moving my podcast to like, you know, these kind of zoom interviews, uh, I feel like it's pretty possible 
to to sort of essentially get the same result and out of a phone conversation for both podcasts and therapy as, yeah. uh, as being in person. In fact, I feel like one thing that we're probably going to take away from all of this COVID stuff is like, there's a good tweet about it. Um, somebody said, uh, I guess we're finally going to find out which one of those meetings could have been emails. Uh-huh. Um, and it turns out a lot of them, right? Like a lot of physical meetings can be phone calls and it seems fine yeah um i saw somebody tweet like posted like uh you know uh pro tip um be careful uh with you know uh trying to convince your boss that your position can be done remotely uh because he could easily just like hire some indian dude and fire you for like half the wage um but yeah, so long as, you know, hopefully, hopefully this is like an evolution for capitalism and like a, in the right, you know, moving forward, like one step in the right direction. I, I just think that it's, I think the most interesting thing about COVID is how much people have like adapted to it. Um, also, because, yeah, it's like so many fucking things could just be done from home and so many jobs. Like there's a handful that really cannot like. You know, if you're working in a restaurant or whatever, unless it's just like the honor system, you just like leave the restaurant like open. It's like a buffet line. And it's like, all right, <laughs> yeah, just, just leave. Like, leave the correct amount of money, please. Yeah. <laughs> there's, an, there's just one armed guard. Right. Well, there's, I think it was in, was it Japan? Someone was telling me that um, you go in and you sort of sit in a booth by yourself and a little window opens and they just like kind of slide the food out to you and then shut the window again and someone was like it's super good you don't have to talk to anyone it like fully solves like every part of social anxiety with going out to eat by yourself and shit like that um sounds pretty fucking cool so i mean if they could just like instead of sliding the food out to you via a human do it just with a robot arm or something which i'm sure isn't too hard then Pretty sure restaurants could operate self-sufficiently with with no humans involved. I mean, yeah, I mean it's essentially what a vending machine is, right? Is a vending machine a restaurant? Um, well, I think that a restaurant needs to have like a restroom. So, what if you take a piss behind the vending machine? <laughs> then it's an eatery. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I used to work at this uh, this restaurant in Vernon, New Jersey, at Crystal Springs Resort called the chef's garden and it was all like farm to table they literally did have a garden there um that they used i I think all their vegetables actually came from the garden but as far as anything else uh like meats and stuff they would just like source it from like somewhat local farms and things like that and uh they operated under like a loophole that it was uh, a restaurant uh because so basically it was like in this kind of weird part of the resort where like there was not a bathroom it like at the chef's garden but um directly adjacent to it uh was this thing called the biodome which was really not a dome it was more like a like a hangar i don't know it was like a big like a like a cylindrical thing so not a dome but yeah it was like there was like palm trees in there and shit and like a pool and like a gelato bar and shit and like uh, whenever someone would need to go to the bathroom at the chef's garden, I'd have to like explain them these like really somewhat complicated directions to get to the bathroom 
that wasn't a part of the chef's garden. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we had to act like it was so that we could be considered a restaurant. Um, because I don't know, like, really why that is. Because, uh, like, otherwise we would have been an eatery. Um, and I don't know what, like, the... It's almost like a, I imagine there's some benefits or whatever that you get as a restaurant legally that you wouldn't if it was an eatery. Kind of like how when you're married, you get certain benefits that you don't if you're just like partnered. Yeah, the world's fucking weird. It's like just certain conditions can like change a bunch of shit about like what we call that thing, even though ostensibly it's the same thing. Yeah, it's just like, yeah, I mean, it goes to show how important language is. Just like in regards to like music theory and just like, but not even music theory, just the language of music specifically. <clears throat> I think that using the same terms to talk about things is just like immensely important in regards to like our capacity to like understand these things. Cause it's like, uh, I talked about this on uh, the bright side podcast a couple weeks ago. Um, like if you were uh, like a child raised by wolves and then one day you entered society uh, like, there's a reason why they say that, like, kids who didn't, like, learn language are, like, development, uh, de developmentally stunted. Because, like, I, I just think about, in regards to music, how much easier it, it has become over the years for me, even with no formal, like, background in it, to talk about music once I learn a term for something. But what's interesting is when I learn a new term, it's never like, what the fuck is that? It's usually like, oh, that's what that thing is called. I didn't even know there was a name for that. Um, I just think that's really interesting. But uh, yeah, I don't remember what you said that sparked that. Do you but. think um, then in that case, like you, by using that logic, people with larger vocabularies in general are maybe more emotionally equipped? Yeah, I do think so. Like my dad came from like, an almost stereotypically borderline comic comically broken home. Like he said, when he was like, like he was like in and out of foster care. Uh, you know, his parents, uh, you know, he, he grew up in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So like, like, you know, he, he signed a wicked smart, you know, that's how he, how he talked. Um, but like, he basically didn't even go to high school because he needed to work uh, to help support his family. And you could see that now, like now my dad's like 61 or whatever. And uh, he's definitely he's gone through the shit. Like he basically went from th that shitty upbringing to being a very angry young adult, very angry, getting in fights all the time, just like getting in ridiculous like situations that I could never even imagine coming close to. Um, and then he got sober in his like mid mid 30s, mid to late 30s. And then I guess started getting all woke about shit. Like so woke that he even like went to Peru and and he's like, Tommy, I'm going to going to Peru soon on a nature walk. <laughs> and my first instinct, I was, I was like, my dad is not going to Peru to take ayahuasca with yeah, no. a fucking shaman, is he? But I'm like, why else would you go to Peru? On a nature right. walk. Yeah, uh, for sure. And <laughs> post-divorce, too. Like, um, like he had just gotten divorced. Like, uh, his second wife, so not my mom. But, like, it was, like, basically around their 10-year anniversary, they just, like, just stopped. Um, and then the nature walk thing happened. But, yeah, um, my I can only imagine how my dad would be if he, like, had access to, like, 
education and like a better upbringing when he was younger because it it shows like my dad's a smart guy uh but his vocabulary is definitely limited but back to your question which was like do you think that having like a larger vocabulary essentially would make you more emotionally equipped i think there's definitely some truth to that uh considering the number of like physical like altercations my dad had been in when he was younger and like violence was the only solution to many problems that he dealt with when he was younger because he probably didn't have the words well i, I think um when like you're saying when you, when you learn something about music uh that there's a term for something that you've already been doing or feeling about music or you know just like some idea or concept that you have you learn that there's a term for that it's kind of like it alleviates some frustration right and you're like oh that's it feels good to know that i could just say that word to somebody or google that term and in return <clears throat> they know what i'm talking about or i get a bunch of information from the internet about that topic and can learn more about it right like there's a, there's a lot of like cathartic effect from from knowing uh terms like that and i feel like that's potentially the same with a larger vocabulary um and with emotions right it's like if you just know that like the way you're feeling is you know some complicated fucking emotion emotional word that i probably don't know the word from word for uh it's you know it could just be less frustrating to know that there's a term for that yeah yeah, definitely. Um, <clears throat> I kind of wish. For, for instance, think about. I'm um, sorry to cut you off, but like, think about think about like just something simple like jealousy. Like, let's say you were feeling jealous and you didn't know about the word jealousy or the concept of jealousy or uh, the history of it or the fact that everybody experiences it. Like, let's say you didn't know any of that, but you were feeling it. It would be fucking immensely more frustrating. Hmm. <clears throat> yeah. Absolutely. It makes me think about when I was little, um, and I, would, I remember driving around, like, in the back seat of my babysitter's car, uh, and, like, occasionally driving around my mom and stuff, too. But I remember, like, this car must have not had air conditioning or something. But I was really hot. But I didn't know how to express that. So I would say my back hurts. And I probably did that for, like, a couple years um, until, I guess, I started to put two and two together. Like, oh. Uh, like, because, like, how do you know, like, that what you're feeling is what all these other people are talking about. It's like uh, acid indigestion for the or the longest time. People call it heartburn. And I like I remember just not being sure if that's something I had ever had, heartburn. Because um, I'm like, well, my heart certainly doesn't feel like it's burning. That sounds like a really serious condition. Um, and then I one day realized that it's <clears throat> acid indigestion, which is a much more uh, apt term, I think, to describe that sensation uh it's definitely there's nothing really confusing about it you're like oh my stomach has acid oh and then okay like that makes sense heartburn that one threw me off though <laughs> i think yeah education or in, what is it information is power that's the one yeah oh uh, yeah i've been trying to learn a lot of shit lately actually i've been trying to learn um so I, i've been getting back into youtubing and one thing i talked to adam neely about on this podcast was uh the process for which he makes uh youtube videos and he said it's 100 percent 
of the time that he wants to learn more about something and then uses making a YouTube video as an excuse to learn about it and then just goes down all these Wikipedia rabbit holes and educates himself on the subject and then basically documents what he learns in the process of a YouTube video <clears throat> and develops arguments and questions of his own and all that kind of shit. And I was like, that's fucking awesome. It's like you basically never stop learning and you've turned never stopping learning into a career on YouTube, which is awesome. So I've been thinking about that lately. I, I don't do it as aggressively as he does, but I, I'm definitely using YouTube as an excuse to learn new things. And one of the things I was trying to learn about the other day was all pass filters. And that sent me down quite the fucking Wikipedia yeah. rabbit hole. I had to start Actually, learning about like uh, zeniths and azimuths and polar coordinates and Cartesian coordinates and fucking all sorts of weird transfer functions and shit like that. And it was just, and at the end of the day, I felt really good. I was like, holy shit, I know like 10 more things now and I feel awesome <laughs> about it. Well, yeah, because I think that the more that you learn, the more that you have the capacity to learn anything. It's almost like something as simple as like, you know, learning one DAW and then deciding one day like, okay, I want to switch now. Uh, learning a second DAW is going to be immensely easier than learning the first one. Um, and like, yeah, like, um, I don't know, like, you just start to see similarities between like everything, almost in like a, a Jim Carrey uh, 23, that movie that I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. Is that what that, like, yeah. So that's based on uh, apophenia, which is humans' amazing ability to see patterns in shit that there's just no patterns in. Like we we look at completely unrelated data, and it's very easy for us to quantify it to be, by being like, oh, this it's looking like some repetitive pattern is in there, just for us to sort of like make sense of it. Yeah, I mean, it, it helps in regards to at least like I think if you can make an analogy in a few different ways. Uh, about something then um you probably understand it pretty well and i think that things like analogies are some of the best ways to ex like explain to somebody else to help them learn like what this specific weird thing is that you're talking about and it, well, yeah. I, I sorry you go oh i was gonna say yeah it, it i agree with you because it's like you're taking something that they already understand and applying the already understood thing to another thing it's kind of like if i was trying to explain to you what a hot dog is um and now and then i'll be like oh you know it's kind of like a like a sausage uh, or something like that and you're like well i know what a sausage is so i basically now know what a hot dog is too right it's just kind of yeah it's it's it just makes it easier to transfer knowledge over from other stuff and it's weird too because like well they say that your ability to explain something is directly correlated with your actual understanding of the thing and like I have learned a lot from getting more into like the educational aspect of things and like um, like over the last two or so years, like it basically started when I like released that tackle box sample pack, um, which the whole idea behind it really was trying to provide, it was like the slogan was like teach your man how to fish um, because I think a lot of sample packs, it's like I almost feel guilty just releasing a sample pack sometimes because I just feel like, oh, I don't know how much this is really helping. Um, like, I understand that people will have fun with this, and I, I guess that's all that really matters. And yes, obviously, I'll make money from it too. But I think I would much rather um, give somebody, like, the tools to be able to uh, figure shit out on their own. So, like, yeah, like, I guess what I'm getting at is, like, in the tackle box thing, I had uh, videos that corresponded with project files that also it came with, and then I also had like uh, snare and kick building things. So like just 
different layers, like the fundamentals and tops and things like that. Um, but yeah, that's when my whole like entryway to the whole educational thing started and I started doing lessons and whatever. But honestly, when I think about the lessons I did a couple of years ago, and even like when I started at Slam, I think that my ability to like, it was just, I was very unrehearsed. Uh, I don't know how else to put it. Like, and now it's it's at the point where I've said the same thing so many different times that like I can take, you know, a two minute sentence of me fumbling around and compress it into like 15 words and just drive the point home. But it's just like the repetition thing. It's just like doing the same thing over and over again. Yeah, I think that's something that a lot of people don't realize is that teaching is super fucking different than just inherently knowing something. Uh, and that is like uh, the the best that I've ever seen that sort of uh, realized is when I was watching a guy, uh, I think he's, I can't remember what his name was. He was like a pro esports player and he was just insanely good at Counter-Strike. Uh, and so he very clearly like understands like this game on a on a very deep level that I'll never understand it. But then hearing him in an interview, I was like, this guy has like no idea how to explain anything he's doing. Like he's, he obviously is the, one of the best in the world at this game, but he can't explain to somebody else even what he's doing, let alone teach somebody else how to do it, um, which is super impressive. And I, I think um, generally like the people who are the best at something are generally not the best teachers at the thing. It's usually... Yeah, I I do agree though. I think like I'm um, being able to analogize something, if that's a word, or uh, articulate something. It displays like a really good understanding of the knowledge, even if you can't do the thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's funny too because if I don't know something, I'm literally just like I'm not really that sure about this. I would just look it up or like in regards to like I don't know, be going over some Fab Filter thing or like a uh, Fab Filter like Pro L two, <clears throat> um, like. It's interesting because like there's some like for example, uh, you know on FabFilter Pro L you got all the different like types like there's transparent, dynamic, aggressive, etc. Yeah, um, yeah. I remember looking at the manual and reading the differences between all those things on maybe two occasions, um, and then deciding that I think that transparent is the one that I generally want to go for, but whenever it comes up. Again, I'm like, uh, you know what? I haven't looked at the manual in a while. Just go check it out. They really break it down. Um, I made a decision as to why I use transparent mode, um, although I don't even remember why. So I don't, I don't fully understand those modes, but usually what I do is I just click through them and just choose one that I think sound, sounds good. And it's usually dynamic, aggressive, or modern is the three that I find usually work on my stuff the best. Usually if I'm doing like an IDM thing or whatever, um, well, I don't know. It's I, can, I really can't like put my finger on which one suits what because I could be making a banger and dynamic sometimes works the best. Like it, it gets it the loudest and sounds the cleanest or sometimes modern sounds just like more full or something. I don't, it's weird, but I usually just click through them and I, I notice the one that I like the least is safe. Because it <laughs> makes shit so quiet. Oh, and like it doesn't save, like it just like disables half the parameters and stuff too. Just yeah, like exactly. dummy mode. Well, yeah. safe, yeah, exactly. Well, it's like, that's like Mac. I mean, not like, you know, but like really, that's, that's the like double edged sword of Mac is that they streamline this experience so that it will work, that it will always work 
almost at least, um, at the expense of control uh, of the user. Uh, I mean, like, you can't even f fix half your devices, I feel like, with Macs. Like, you know, like, they don't even want you to fix your phone. I mean, well, yeah, maybe. Um, so here's the thing, though, is, like, uh, since I moved to San Francisco for the relationship that I'm currently in and uh, started meeting a shitload of programmers, they all use Apple. Like, they all use MacBooks because apparently just coding in the terminal, like, uh, using, I think, what what's called Bash, is just apparently way better in Mac because it's based on Linux, I guess, is it? Or based on, yeah. I think it's, yeah, Linux and, and Mac, I think, are sort of based on the same architecture. And Windows is not. It's, like, its own thing, I think. Well, I guess what I'm getting at is, like, because I think there's, like, um, basic, like, like if, if we're going to, like, rank the, the, the levels of um, how adept a user is um, from, like, a baby boomer using a cell phone for the first time to like a computer like programmer. Um, I think that there's probably if you were to look at this as like a like a chart, like a XY thing for like Mac and PC, I imagine that there is a sweet spot for like intermediate users. What well, intermediate is like relatively uh, what's the definition of that? Is that like above average knowledge? I think, I think that's like average. It's, so what would be the next thing? Oh, yeah, so let's just say slightly above average. I'd imagine there'd be a little curve, like a little pocket for Windows users. Um, uh, uh, you know, under the assumption that what you're saying is uh, correct, um, and then maybe it would go back down the other way, like towards Mac, once you know more. But um, I, do you, are you familiar with Restraint yet? The artist? He's honestly, dude, um, he's become one of my best friends since I've moved here, and he um, is seriously and i don't say this lightly on some like tipper level shit um he has this just innate understanding of like vowely and squelchy sounds um and honestly it's half of his shit is like most of his stuff is unreleased right now he was gonna play sonic bloom with uh, a tipper resonant language and uh, i think it was detox unit um but obviously that got canceled um but yeah I'm actually living with him right now, um, but uh, I brought him up mainly because um, he like works in IT and um, uses Windows, um, and I know he would have a lot of opinions on this. But yeah, I mean, like I built my computer, I got a light up keyboard because I was getting laid too much. Um, and you're getting laid too much? Yeah, <laughs> you've seen that <laughs> meme that, where it's like uh, you know you go over to a guy's house to Netflix and chill and you see he's got a light up keyboard and you just go home. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's like, I uh, I have a, a, an above average understanding of like computers, but like I never worked in IT and I never really got into programming apart from like, I guess like my web design experience when I was like 15, I knew HTML1, like the back of my hand, but um, yeah, he is a whiz with computers. And I think that uh, knowing, I think there's like a few aspects that make like getting into production like a lot less, a lot more painless. Uh, one of them, obviously, music theory is nice to know. Uh, two, knowing about computers uh, and knowing your way around an operating system is immensely helpful as well. And then the third thing is knowing about the specific DAW, um, and I guess also 
just general production techniques and theories like you know eqs and filters and all these things um yeah because i always honestly i feel bad for somebody who's getting into production um when they don't know a goddamn thing about computers because that's like it makes it so much harder i think yeah you have to kind of like learn a sh way yeah it's more overwhelming because you have to learn more things at once yeah feel that it's, how's a teaching going by the way are you still enjoying it yeah, I mean, I always, if anything, I've grown to enjoy it more. Um, it's essentially my only source of income right now. I am, like, crossing my fingers on unemployment. Um, but, yeah, like, I I basically, I try and not, like, I feel guilty if I'm going to promote, like, that I'm doing lessons unless I've, like, had some content to back it up. Um, so, like, if I have a music release or if I upload a tutorial or whatever, or if I did, a, like, a, a live stream, or whatever, um, I'll be like, hit me up for lessons. You know what I mean? But I feel weird if I'm just sitting on my ass not releasing anything, and I'm like, hit me up for lessons. Well, I, feel, I feel like, A, you're at this point a practice teacher, and B, I feel like you, there's a lot that anyone could learn from you, uh, like beginners or advanced people. Like, I feel like there's a lot of shit you could show me, for instance, and vice versa. But, like, I, I don't think a, you should feel like a hack for putting your name out there to to be learned from because i think everyone has like had their own very unique experience with how they have gotten to the point where they make the shit that they make right and through that experience like the very specific set of stuff that you've done and experienced you, you you'll have like a you know different outlooks and different processes and stuff like something as simple as uh like a good example is when I wanted to learn some neuro-based shit and I started talking to Nolan and he was just like, just put all of your bandpass filters before your distortion units. And I was like, that has sort of changed my sound design process forever. Just learning that one simple little thing. Cause I was like, oh yeah, that makes total sense. Like send just a small sliver of the signal into a distortion unit and allow that unit to then add all the harmonics back. That's super smart. And then yeah something like that you know is something i probably just wouldn't have thought of or you know and yeah that that to me i think it validates learning from someone like you i think yeah um no and i generally agree with that um i can't even describe necessarily the like my internal feelings about a lot of things sometimes um uh if anything yeah i guess um i feel I just generally feel guilty when I'm not being like super productive in every sense. So that kind of bleeds into every other aspect of the whole thing and also my life too, I guess. But um, yeah, it's funny how something as simple as that though can like be game changing though. I, I love that. Um, Cause yeah, it's like the, it's like the order of operations. It's like as you get better and like, as you sort of develop like a wisdom uh, an experience of like trying out all these different combinations of things. Um, like, you know, there's nothing more annoying than when you learn something in like the middle of a project or towards the end of a project. And then you realize like, ah, in order to do this thing in the way that I, uh, really would like to have done it, I would have had to have done something very different eight steps back. Um, you know, um, but then that's just, you know, you just, uh, you just sort of swallow that, you know, learn from it and then just apply it next time, like in a different tune. Yeah, exactly. And almost at some point, the things that you do become just innate 
or uh, just like you just do them second nature right like you don't think about it too much like for instance the way you put a filter or where you put a distortion or where you use soft clippers and stuff like that you don't you eventually you don't even think about it you just like have have learned that so long ago at this point it's just sort of your process now and i think it's important as a teacher to be very like uh to pay close attention to your process and inspect it heavily uh, so you can know why you do things and then impart that knowledge on others. And I think you do a pretty good job of that. Well, thanks. Yeah, I mean, I feel like... Uh, so it's funny too, though, because every now and then you have these things that become innate. Um, and then sometimes that can turn into like overconfidence. So like, for example, like I generally mix into a limiter. Once my mix down, at, like once once my mix down is like 80% of the way there and like I think like, okay, things are sounding pretty good. I have like this... The, the song is sounding generally good um like this section sounds like i could you know dj it out um i usually start mixing into a limiter because then i start to have an idea of how it will sound when it's mastered uh, because i think that the mix down decisions that you end up making are gonna be anywhere from slightly different to very different um when you have a limiter on yeah i 100 um, agree i i do i mix into a limiter from like step one basically and this is the i espouse the same idea to people when i'm teaching them because it's like yeah the thing is gonna get compressed eventually and you want to know how all of this shit responds to a compressor before like a limiter being a compressor you want to know how it responds to that as you're doing it because yeah the mixed decisions you make will be different and you'll get a really surprising shock almost every time if you don't i feel like like you when you mix not into a limiter and then at the end you send it to mastering or do the mastering yourself and start compressing it it's like well fuck all my drums disappeared i wonder why and it's like well it's because they're getting squashed and everything else and what you need to do and this is kind of counterintuitive is make your drums like kind of significantly louder than everything else so that they actually get squashed in properly against the limiter and and it's just easiest to make that decision if you're just mixing into a limiter yeah, and like the only times I'll really turn it off is if I'm really like struggling on like, you know, something as simple as just like, you know, <clears throat> trying to dial in the compression on like a, a snare or something. And I'm like, what the fuck am I hearing right now? So I'll be like, okay, hold on. Let me just turn off this limiter for a second. Um, and then like maybe I'll do that then. But um, in regards to the overconfidence thing, um, you know, for a bit, I would like be putting like uh, Fat Filter Pro MB on my bass group. And this is like a tidbit that I saw from Culprit where he basically squashes the low end and the highs uh, for two pretty different reasons, uh, according to him on like this Twitch video, which at this point is probably two years old. So I have no idea if this is something he even does anymore. But squashing the low end, you know, 90 hertz and below, 120 hertz and below. I'm not really sure exactly what the range is, but uh, just squashing it uh, in a multiband compressor, specifically Pro MB. Um, because, and he just like pointed out, like, if you ever really, you know, pay attention to any like generally heavier bass music or most dance floor, uh, bass music, um, generally isn't very dynamic in the sub range. Uh, and if it, it's almost binary, uh, like maybe it'll vary like a couple decibels, give, give or take, but for the most part, it's either on or off. Um, and you know, that sort of leads to a consistent fat sound, um, and then squashing the high end you know, like 3K or 5K and above uh, because that's the part of the frequency spectrum that'll like have people be like, ah, ooh, that hurt. And then they'll like leave the dance floor and go smoke a ciggy. Um, so I was doing stuff like that and then also throwing on like Pro C on like my bass group and then a limiter. And then it, you know, like I would like 
constantly like I would be not sure if I liked how the compression sounded. So I would like uh, duplicate it and then mute one of them and then mess with it so that in case I made it worse, I could at least go back. But then I ended up in this one particular project. I think stuff like this generally happens when I work on a tune for too long. Um, what ended up happening in this one tune is like I'm trying to adjust the levels of this fucking one, like one of the bass tracks. And I'm turning it up or down like 15 decibels and it's not sounding any different because of how <laughs> like squashed it is and how much shit's on the group. So I literally just turned everything off on the group uh, apart from just the side chaining and uh, and went from there. So like every now and then I have to check myself if I get a little overconfident with just like not even really thinking about what I'm doing and why. Um, because yeah, eventually I think you run into issues somewhat like that. Um, it could be something completely different, but I think overconfidence can sort of happen in like any aspect of production. Yeah, I agree. I, I run into the, those things sometimes too, where you just start processing shit too much. And then at the end, it's like trying to do your mix down is such a pain in the ass because making any adjustment almost becomes inaudible because everything is just being so insane. Like everything is so reliant on these giant chains of processing that adjusting like any source or level is just kind of doesn't make too much of a difference unless you go through and sort of change everything on this giant iterative chain that you've designed and that takes fucking forever so you never do that usually what i do to solve this problem is render everything to audio and put it in a session where there's like no compressors and level actually matters again yeah yeah it's um and it, yeah it's like little things it's like i'm trying to not like have knee jerk like put white noise on everything lately and if i do i i try and just maybe use a lot less have you used the plugin texture no by who there's this plugin by devious machines called texture and it's essentially like way better erosion uh so you can essentially it does the same thing erosion does it like mixes a signal with white noise right but it also mixes a signal with just any kind of noise including noises that you can input yourself so it's kind of like a like vocoder on noise mode or erosion but it has a bunch of inbuilt samples and a few of those samples are um like wet sound effect noises like bubbles and dripping sounds and stuff like that and combining like a snare with one of those makes it sound like this just full glacial like really wet sounding snare it's so good yeah i would highly suggest texture by devious machines if if you want to if you're trying because i had that same issue where i was like fuck i should just i should stop putting erosion on everything and now i haven't pulled out erosion in months um because i was just like yeah it's just it's it has a certain sound to it every neuro person sounds the same now because of this fucking white noise layer on everything well um, then there's like the sprinklery white noise like the upscale kind of white noise yeah, where, where it's you like, just do the same thing but put an auto pan on it well so not that although i talked to vorso and apparently that is something he literally used to do but that's just like the biggest pain in the ass because then if you i think the whole idea for this like for anybody listening also it's like uh the putting an auto pan on white noise uh, and then what setting the phase to like zero so that it's mono um, yeah and then you set the that... frequency to the frequency of the note you're playing so if it's an a you set the frequency at which it's cutting to 440 times per second so it also resonates with the note and sounds pretty clean with the note yeah it's a, it's an interesting like concept from like a music theory aspect because it's like quote-unquote in tune white noise um, whatever the fuck that means um, but I guess it sounds good. It, like if it does sound good, then that's all that matters. But like the way that I've been doing it over the last like year was, and I don't remember who the hell I talked to that 
clued me in on it, but if anything, I felt like betrayed that I was left in the dark on this tip for so long. Um, but I think it was Copycat who probably told me about it because Copycat, he's a pretty open book about any of the things that he does. Like he sent me racks and shit and honestly, he's great. Um, and uh, yeah, basically just like, say you have an operator base patch, just put it in a group, duplicate it just to save time or you could just drag in another operator. And then on the on the second operator, this would be your main white noise thing. Um, just like having the default routing um, uh, like that serial routing and then on A having it be a sine wave and then on B have it be white noise and then just high pass it and then play with the transposition like doing like shift up or down to go between octaves and then that's the sprinklery sound. I mean, if you were to just solo that and then not have the the high pass, then you would just hear fuzzy sine wave. Um, but then high so passing, like you just get rid of the FMing. fundamental. So it's FMing a sine wave with white noise. Exactly. Um, but it's interesting too, though, because, and I don't actually know. Um, it's weird. Every plugin sounds different. Every plugin does things in different ways. Because if you try to do the same thing in like Faceplant, for example, it doesn't work. You have to do it like the other way around. So like uh, John Leitner Restraint, um, he is not convinced that it's technically FM. Um, like I guess when you do it with white noise, I don't know uh, exactly why that would be the case. But um, yeah, that's one way I've been doing it for a while. Um, and then the other way, like I was watching Curse on his Twitch stream. He literally doesn't give a shit. Like, because my whole logic behind like doing that uh like with a separate operator is two things one i'm keeping the low end uh free of white noise um uh, because you know just meticulous like oh what if it makes it muddy and then yeah, two way better without doing that yeah and, and then two is the transposition thing because then you get that sprinklery sound but i found mm. myself like i don't even really know if i like that like pfft, like that shit <laughs> Like, I don't know how much I care for it most of the time. And it's just been done so many times, I guess. But Cursa literally just does the white noise. Like, he'll make a bass and operator. I think which is like the default routing half the time uh, from what I've seen on Twitch. And then just, like, throw on white noise, like, right in there. And it sounds good. And, like, really, it's almost like dithering, I guess, if, like, at that point. That's kind of exactly what it is. I feel like making Neuro... And a lot of dubstep these days is so forgiving because you're adding so much noise into it that it kind of like masks all of the clicks and pops and imperfections and stuff. And that's exactly how dithering, dithering works. If you, um, if you, here's a, I mean, I have a video on this on my YouTube channel and the, uh, the example that I show is I put a sine wave with operator into a channel and I put redux on it and turn redux's bit depth down to eight. Uh, mm -hmm. So you can start to hear this like, very quantized noise the sine wave is coming out at like you know which is a sine wave is a very pure tone so it's very obvious when it's distorting so um the sine wave is poking out at like zero db on the spectrum and then there's a bunch of noise at probably like negative 20 db or something like that and then if you add white noise in just very quietly and subtly up to 20 db or nine negative 19 db so it's just above whatever that quantization noise is uh, the quantization noise goes away and because the white noise is there it sounds kind of like more clean even though it's less clean it's like full yeah, of yeah. noise now but it takes your your mind or it just masks all of this uh quantization noise and that's exactly how dithering works um when you do a render you you inherently uh have to go from 32-bit float point environment down to i guess 16-bit if you want to distribute it 
onto a CD or into Spotify or whatever. I think maybe DistroKid takes 24-bit, but either way, it adds a little... The, for anyone listening, dithering is essentially good noise to mask bad noise. That's that's, that's all it is. It, and it exists in like film and stuff too. Like, But I think that they just call it noise. And I don't know if they call it dithering in that realm, but it's the same idea. Like if you have... And I think it's particularly common with like um, movies that have like special effects, whether it's CGI or practical. Um, because if you have enough noise going on, then maybe you're not going to necessarily notice that the special effects aren't real um, in the context that they're in. Um, and uh, oh, I was going to say something else about... Oh, yeah. So what's like the general logic behind dithering? Is that something that you, one would uh, use? Like, isn't the whole like, or at least one of the uh, implications of it uh, uh, to use it if you have like a tune that has a bunch of like samples from a bunch of different like bit depths and stuff. Um, yeah, that's one you know reason. I mean? So it's it's to solve the quantization error problem, uh, which basically sounds like sort of Redux essentially. It sounds like digital sort of si- a square wavy kind of kind of distortion, and it's just to cover that up. But one. You can't even hear it in electronic music because electronic music's already hitting at zero dB and it's so loud and non-dynamic for the most part that you're not going to hear this negative 60 dB quantization error noise ever. And two, I mean, like this, it's so low in volume that even if your shit was super dynamic, it's so hard to hear on like amazing speakers or amazing headphones that no one is going to hear it like on their iPhone speaker or anything like that. Like you, you could never turn dithering on in your ableton settings for the rest of your career and it wouldn't make a difference at all to your career like it it, it's it's not a thing that anyone has to worry about i think yeah i generally agree with that and i remember right when i was starting to get into like mastering and stuff and like the whole reason i started to kind of back to what we were saying earlier like mixing into a limiter um is because i would like not mix into a limiter ever and i would mix with a lot of headroom which honestly i generally encourage people to go through that like like i think that you should try all these different things and i think that you know having a phase of your production um you know journey where you don't have a limiter on and mix with a lot of headroom is you know a very valuable practice because it's like only once you do something do you figure out, like, do you then learn, like, is that something I really want to do? Um, it was like uh, me learning, uh, like, it was like a milestone for me to learn how to synthesize my own drums. And then that EP I released almost two years ago, Uneven Scraggle, um, like, my whole goal for that was, like, I want to fucking synthesize every bit of the percussion on this. Apart from maybe, like, there's a tambourine uh, here and there or, like, a rim shot. Uh, everything else was synthesized but then i was hanging out in bristol because i lived in ireland for a couple months and then i took like a 15 uh, euro flight over to bristol uh, and spent like a weekend with the wonky records dudes uh, uh, and like sandy like seppa and uh, dimitri and like all those people and uh, max peak do you know him max peak no uh, hurt, hurt deer he also has oh, a side yeah. project called dj fucking idiot where he just makes like <laughs> Uh, he makes like 2012, like purposefully cringy, like bro step Skrillex sounding <laughs> shit with like acapellas from like Nickelback or something. And it's like, he'll do that for like, he'll have an hour long set of like the cringiest music. And that's like the whole point. He's like the most meta artist I've ever met. 
And I stayed with him, and he's honestly fucking hysterical. And he's got... I would follow him on Twitter, too. Like, he's he's a real hoot. But, um, yeah, hanging out with Sandy, uh, I went up in his studio, and he basically just, like, sat down and, like, listened to my whole, like, almost finished EP, gave me feedback on it. And um, one of the things that he said... Um, about one of the tunes. It actually wasn't even a tune on the EP, but one of my tunes is this really overly aggressive tune called I Can't Wait, and it doesn't really have a moment of, like, peace. Like, there, it's, like, literally three minutes of, like, just high intensity. Uh, and af- ever since after this tune, I started to, like, put in a little breakdown. Like, make sure there's always at least, you know, one or two breakdowns here and there. Um... And uh, he was like, yeah, like, you know, it sounds really sick. It's just like, I'm not a fan of those, like, overly synthesized snares. And it was like, you know, not to put anyone's opinion on a pedestal, like, at all. But it did make me kind of realize, like, um, if you're trying to achieve a certain sound, you kind of have to, like, consider literally every single aspect. Um, And it was like, I was trying to achieve a certain sound. And I then realized that um, that sound that I kind of wanted, uh, generally, at least in some cases for certain tunes, I wasn't getting because I was using synthesized snares. So, like, it was only learning how to do that, like, how to synthesize all my snares and kicks and everything uh, that I learned, like, that I don't want to do that all the time. Yeah, and I, I think it almost makes you feel more justified in using samples when you know how to not use samples, too like I agree and I've had the same experience like learning how to synthesize snares is great and I use my own synthesized snares a lot still but every now and then I'm like I want to use a sampled snare because you know even though it's like yeah I'm using samples and that's less legit it's like it's kind of more legit because I'm making that artistic decision to do it and and I could make that artistic decision not to do it but I know that it makes the song better to use a sample in this case and therefore like it's better for the song so I'm going to do that and yeah, I think it's always important to to do whatever is more serving to the tune than to do whatever is more serving to your egotistical production mind. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but it is interesting too. Oh yeah, and another thing in regards to the white noise, dithering, mastering thing. Um, right when I was getting into mastering and I was having a conversation with Sandy about it, I'm like, how come I'll have a tune that's like got a lot of game reduction and it sounds fine? like a heavy slapper of a tune. But then in the breakdown, you know, when, like, let's just say, like, I don't know, one of the my common lazy tricks for a breakdown is I'll just, like, low pass half of the shit, you know what I mean? Um, then I hear the game reduction a lot, and he's like, well, it's probably always there. You just don't notice it uh, because you have, like, full Masking. spectrum of shit going on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing, the reason I started, like, you know, when I... The day I decided to pull myself up on my bootstraps and and just start mastering my own shit was uh, when I sent a tune for a Veil compilation to get mastered by DET. You know him? DET. Det- oh, sorry. What's his name? Oh, DET. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sp- Spanish guy. Yeah, he's so sick. Honestly, he's one of my favorites. Uh, but yeah, I sent it to him to get mastered, and it sounded fine on my end with a bunch of headroom and all the shit. But then he was like, "Dude, the bass is way too loud in this." And I was like, huh. And like, I so I turned it down. But that kept happening. Anytime I'd ever send my tune to get mastered by somebody else, they'd always tell me some issue that I just was like always stumped by. I'm like, 
how could that be? It sounds fine. <laughs> um, so I just, you know, cut the middleman out because that was just driving me fucking insane. It was just so annoying and inconvenient and tedious to like have that back and forth every time. Um, so yeah, and it's like you kind of know it. how you want it to sound, right? Yeah, exactly. And as long as you trust your monitoring environment and you know how to use visual meters and readouts and you know how to very objectively compare your visual readouts and your tunes against other people's tunes, that's one of the most important fucking things I think I can tell anybody about mixdowns and mastering is reference your stuff against other people's stuff that you know for sure sounds really good. Like, for instance... For someone like you, it might be, or for, for even me, it could be like noisier or something, right? Um, and your ear is so good at playing spot the difference. Like if you play your tune against another tune of yours or a noisier tune or a Jade Cicada tune or a Tipper tune or something you know slaps on a big system, your ear is so good at just being like, oh, there's not enough of this or there's too much of this. And even on shitty monitoring environments, it's like really easy to, to tell these things yeah i uh it's funny like i mean i got the adam a7x's right now and honestly i don't think i like them that much but either way um my i, I think that a decent pair of monitors with good treatment is far more beneficial than great monitors with not good treatment or none at all uh, it's yeah, almost 100%. pointless yeah, uh, i always but, tell people um if you have the choice between getting like solid monitors but you're not going to get treatment or even shitty monitors and you're not going to get like get treatment or whatever i always say don't like don't even go that route just get a really nice set of headphones and use sonar exactly. works true fire to like balance them because you're going to need sonar works though because uh, yeah like i i'm using i forget i'm using those headphones that like everybody and their fucking grandma has the yeah. at ATH, m50x's it's like 120 yeah, yeah. bucks or whatever um but like They're pretty good i like those the Sen yeah, I mean, uh, Shore Sennheiser, is it? Uh, Audio Technica, I think. Audio Technica, that's the one. Yeah. You yeah. I had like a brain blast one day. Uh, shout out Jimmy Neutron reference, um, where basically I, it was when I moved to Ireland and like before moving to Ireland, I had Rocket Eights in an untreated room. My desk was like in the corner, um, and that's always what I did. I think it was like around that time that we started talking. That was what my setup was, which. You know, it's not like my shit sounded horrendous at the time, um, especially if, like, you know, you were hitting me up and, you know, I had already started to sort of make some progress in my career and kind of climb the totem pole a little bit. Um, yeah, like, obviously, I knew my setup enough to, like, make things sound decent. But, like, when I found out I was moving to Ireland, obviously, it's not like I can bring my shit with me. Like, maybe I could, but I'm not going to trust a fu some fucking airplane, airport employee just, like, lugging my shit like throwing it into the back of the plane. Um, so I was like, well, shit, all I'm going to have is my laptop. Uh, I already had these headphones, but I never really like used them that much because I loved to have my shit thump, which, you know, is hard to do unless you have a really sick pair of headphones that have like nice low end response. Um, so I got a sub pack. So when I went to Ireland, um, I had all I had was the sub pack, my headphones, my laptop, my interface, and then as far as a controller would go, I used this app called uh, LK. I think it's called LK um, Ableton app. Uh, yeah, it's pretty sick. It has a bunch of different modules. Uh, you don't need to like 
the software itself is free, but then it has like an XY controller. It has like pads. It has like faders and all these things. But like each one is a separate module that you can pay for for like three bucks. Um, so that's what I would use. I think I just use like the XY controller maybe, and then maybe like the knobs and stuff for whenever I would do like granular shit. But um, it was really when I got a sub pack though. Um, I think it's less the sub pack that is as helpful, but it's more so the fact that the sub pack had me more okay with using my headphones. And like, I, uh, and then I realized like, because I'm now using my headphones more often because I don't mind because I can essentially achieve that, you know, thumping, like, you know, it's almost like the equivalent of just like turning up your monitors really loud. Um, which is just a very satisfying thing, feeling the bass and all that stuff. After using my headphones more, I'm like, holy shit, the amount of things I was not hearing before that I hear now. Um, mm. And that's still distortion, right? Like distortion in headphones is so easy to hear. Distortion, gain reduction, reverb, white noise. Like I've almost been thinking about white noise kind of like reverb in the sense that like, you know that old saying, it's like, find wherever your reverb levels are that, that sound good to you and then turn it down by half. Um, I almost feel like white noise is sort of like that too, but... Yeah, it's, it's kind of tough. Like it, whenever I have like in-person lessons, since my listening environment isn't like perfect right now, I'll be trying to like communicate an idea. I'll be like, listen to the difference this makes. And I'll like turn off like something and then play it and then turn it back on and play it. And then I'm realizing like, well, I mean, just take my word for it. I mean, you'd really only notice it if you had headphones on. <laughs> but it's still my go-to, like just my headphones and subpack. Like I hardly even use my Atoms right now because um, I just trust this more. I'm the same. I mean, I have the barefoots in a pretty treated room, but I've been just using my Audi's LCDXs lately because I just had a month where I didn't have a house basically. So I was just like working on my headphones. And through that process, I actually learned that I like using headphones a lot. Uh, but there was a study that was done, I think, a while ago where um, people were told that they wanted to get, that they needed to figure out a new way to get to work. They couldn't take their regular way. So if they normally took a train to work, they were like, all right, now I have to drive or take a bus. Or if they usually took the bus, they now had to take the train or walk or something. Like there was just, the goal was to just take a subset of people. Like I think it was a couple of hundred people and be like, you need to find a new way to work. And what they found was that almost everyone in the study after they had found a new way to get to work stayed with that new way of getting to work after the study had finished which basically i guess the takeaway from that is that when you try and find a new way to do something often you find a better way to do it and yeah i mean i guess this is just one of those things it's like using headphones is not necessarily a better way of monitoring but it's not it's not the worst ever it's not you can get like really good results just doing stuff in headphones for sure yeah i released like I basically finished and did all like the finishing finishing touches of like mixing and mastering of uh, my EP when I was in Ireland with this setup, and then I released four other tunes, uh, at least two two track releases. Which at the time I intended to do one of those every month, one two track release every month, and then I didn't do it again until literally July this past July to the third installment of the these two track releases, which I'd like to continue obviously because I think it's. A pretty achievable goal like it's a realist it's like not because if i put too much on my plate then i'll just get like um i'll sort of shut down and i won't do anything if i have just like okay i'll, I'll finish two tunes in a month that is pretty realistic um you know and i would only set the bar higher for myself if uh if my 
daily routines and and my life was reached this like uh what do you call it uh, ethics is that a word ethos uh, enith 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 let me google it no so, i don't know just reaching like some point of like productivity enlightenment uh right. unless i were to get there only then would i uh set the bar really high um i think the word yeah. you're thinking of is ethos i don't is it Zenith, Zenith, Z Zenith is it? That's I a, think. Uh, the time at which something is most powerful or successful. Yeah, uh, you know what? I learned that word from David Firth, basically. Like, uh, huh. have you seen that video of his cream? Yeah, I have. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen it several times. Like, anytime, like, if uh, I got like company over and. You know, we just kind of get to that point where the night sort of devolves into us just like watching YouTube videos. Um, that always ends up like being a necessity to get played. But yeah, it's like um, at one point, like this dude submerges himself in the cream. And because the cream is constantly making like rapidly improving itself, um, being submerged in cream uh, turned him into a zenith of absolute perfection and a being of just pure light energy. Um, so that's where I learned that word. David Firth, shout out. I, I also learned uh, about Aphex Twin through David Firth. That's awesome. Yeah, David Firth's a fucking genius. Hey, man, I think we're going to have to wrap because um, I got another call at 3 p.m. and it's 2.55 yeah, p.m. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, thanks for coming on. It's thanks awesome for having me. With you again. Yeah, yeah come on. I hope all is well. And uh, are you in San Diego? San Francisco. San Francisco. Okay. Okay. It's where's the, the other San? Yeah, yeah. Uh, where's the best uh, place that people can go to get in touch with you and check out your shit? And like, where where would you want to send people? Um. So, uh, let's see. My email for starters is uh, k e o t a u s at gmail dot com. So that's kyoto us at gmail dot com. That's for like you know mix downs, inquiries, mastering, uh, lessons, etc. Emphasis on the lessons. If you want a lesson, hit me up via that email. Um, you charge for lessons these days. Uh, lessons lately, I've been trying to keep it pretty uh pretty economically affordable. I do uh, sixty an hour and a hundred bucks for two hours and um mastering 20 bucks and then mix downs is like basically like 80 bucks to like 120 depending on the number of samples or whatever but a lot of times i like to do i'd rather do a mix down in the context of a lesson because i feel like you know again it's just sort of equipping the person to know why or like i'm doing and what and then uh yeah my soundcloud it's just backslash kyoto dash us and um yeah that's mostly it and uh just hit me up feel free cool, man all right thanks Thanks, dude. Peace out. Keep it real, keep it clean, and keep it real clean. Yeah. Hey, thanks for listening to the Mr. Bill podcast. These episodes are edited and uploaded twice a week by Robert Fumo of 303podpro.com. You can also support the show, get early access to episodes, and hear bonus content by going to patreon.com forward slash Mr. Bill's Tunes and becoming a patron. Uh, please rate and review on iTunes unless you're going to be a little shit about it. And all the links to my various platforms are at mrbillstunes.com. Thank you. Hello,